season two of the Mindful Literacy Podcast with your host, Dr. Jessica Bennett. Our mission is to provide one-on-one and small group literacy tutoring to children with dyslexia or who are at risk for reading failure. One of the driving forces behind creating Mindful Literacy Columbus was a social justice focus. We want to make needed education services accessible to all. The board is in the process of researching social determinants of health, such as family income, access to community-based resources, social support, language and literacy, and access to information. It is our vision to create a center where children can have access to high-quality tutoring, irrespective of family income. In our mind's eye, this center would also be a place where adults can study our written language together and where parents can find support. Listener support is paramount to how much we are able to support kids in our community. Thank you so much for your support. Here are three ways you can get involved with Mindful Literacy Columbus. You can share this podcast and you can like and follow Mindful Literacy Columbus on Facebook and Instagram. Pause this podcast right now and go like and follow before you forget. Our Facebook is mindful.literacy.columbus. Our Instagram is mindful.literacy.cbus. Make sure to share posts to your feed and tag your friends. You can also volunteer. There are four opportunities to volunteer with Mindful Literacy Columbus. Even if you don't live in Columbus, first, you could join the Grant Writers Guild. Writers are needed. Second, you can join our summer camp in August. Counselors are needed. Third, we need volunteers for our first annual conference for kids and grown-ups. Even coordinators are needed. This event will be held in August. Finally, you can volunteer to be a mentor and editor for Beehive Press. We especially need high school and college-age volunteers who enjoy studying English or graphic design. If you would like more information about volunteering, please send us a message on Facebook or Instagram. You can also email our Director of Impact at Megan, that is M-E-G-H-A-N, at mindfulliteracypractice.org. Thanks again for your support. And we hope you enjoy this episode of the Mindful Literacy Podcast. Eli Jimenez is an assistant professor in intellectual disabilities in the Department of Learning Sciences at Georgia State University. He earned a bachelor's degree in psychology from Western Michigan, a master's degree in special education with a specialization in autism and developmental disabilities from the University of Texas at Austin, and a doctoral degree in special education from The Ohio State University. He is also a board certified behavior analyst doctoral. His research interests include teaching daily living skills to students with moderate to severe intellectual disabilities, teaching employment skills to students with intellectual disabilities, video prompting, technology, preference assessments, and teacher preparation. Enjoy this conversation with Eli Jimenez. Eli, welcome to the Mindful Literacy Podcast. Hi, Jessica. How are you doing today? Awesome. Thank you. I'm so glad that we're, we found the time to catch up. I can't wait to hear about all of the things you've been doing professionally. And I know you recently became a dad within the last year. So congratulations on that. Thank you. Thank you. My first memory, actually, grad school at Ohio State, I was so self-conscious because I was ginormously pregnant. I think I had, it was past my due date. And going into the first class, there were really only three of us in the cohort. And there was a spot right next to you. So I came in, like waddled in, sat down next to you with my brand new Apple that I did not know how to use. And I just love it. Like you basically, you taught me the art of Googling everything. I don't know if you know that. 
I did not know that. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, it was back when, and it was really, so 2011, it does not seem that long ago, but it was the first time I had had a laptop as a student. It it was this, like my first smartphone, (laughs) my first iPhone. So, oh my gosh, I don't know how to use this Apple. And you'd be like, oh, I'm an Apple user. Let me see. And then you're like, well, I don't know about that version. And you'd be like, look, looking it up on Google. And I was like, wow, you're so smart. (laughs) Well, the funny thing is when when you said that, it reminded me when I was doing something on my laptop or your laptop, actually, and I was using the magic pad or whatever they call it. And there's one, two, three, and four finger, five finger movements you can do. And you're like, wait, what did you just do there? And so I, I kind of show, if you don't remember this, I showed you kind of like, if you do this and you use your four fingers or five and you, you know, push them out, it does this, you bring them back together again and stuff. And so you can scroll on two fingers and everything. So I do remember that, but yeah, 2011, it's 10 years now, almost. It'll be a fall of 10. Yeah. This fall will be 10 years. Yeah. Well, and the other thing is, so, so there's that like personal technology piece. You also studied, you use technology in a lot of your research at Ohio State, video prompting and video modeling. And then the other piece is you're just a really amazing ABA thinker. And so you really helped me kind of collaborative learning. And I don't know that I would have survived the program without your tutelage. So thank you so much. Oh, we, we I had a great time working with you too. And and, uh, and one of the pieces to where I think the unique part of having a cohort of three we did a lot of things together. And so none of us, I think, got caught in the shuffle. Um, we definitely had our ups and downs when it came to going through a program, which everyone should in the PC program. Um, but I think uh, at the end, I do remember our last one of our last memories together was uh, the pre-staging moment before graduation, the commencement ceremony. And we're all hanging out in our robes and everything. And that was like one of the last pieces outside of our photos, of course, but like the last like we're still students, you know, and hanging out and just being goofy. And then all of a sudden now we're responsible adults and professionals. So, uh, just like that, it changes. Yeah. Yeah. Actually, I haven't thought about that moment until you brought it up, but I remember feeling really sad that we couldn't be standing next to each other. (laughs) (laughs) Well, yeah. So I'm really interested to hear about how things are going for you in Georgia and professionally, you know, what direction you've gone in. I know one of the topics we had talked about when we first um, reconnected was the topic of transition from high school to post-secondary options for students. I want to hear all about what you've been up to. Yeah, of course. So after Ohio State, I, I stayed there. Uh, I worked at um, at the Nysonger Center for a year, which a lot of the uh, pieces that I did when I was um, as a student I worked there with them anyways. And so I worked in their transition program uh, for a year before coming down to Georgia State. Um, so that was a really great experience for me, kind of getting into that transition field and then actually being a part of being a program manager of a, of a program uh, for students with intellectual disabilities. So it was a really cool experience. And I really enjoyed it. I worked with some, a lot of great people there. And um, coming down to Georgia State, I took over the intellectual disabilities program. With my background in the technology piece, kind of infusing that in the education to increase quality of life for uh, skill acquisition for individuals with IED. So I've been doing that. And luckily, while I've been here, I actually started volunteering with the Boy Scouts of America. So I was a Boy Scout way back in the day, up until I think fifth grade, sixth grade. I think fifth grade, yeah, because you're, you know, Sixth grade, you're too cool. You know, you're in middle school now. And so so I started uh, to do the special needs champion for uh, my county, um, our district. And so kind of helping out um, adult leaders and promoting success for scouts with special needs. That's what they call it in, in the scouting world. And so doing that, doing some research with Georgia Tech on a really cool Nidler grant. Um, you told me to tell the acronym, but I can't remember off the top of my head right now. But I'm really looking at the use of technology and skill acquisition for vocational skills. So those who are getting employment, who are at employment sites, et cetera, and also to uh, how do uh, those folks use technology uh, with social connectedness, right? So we think about the social media piece, but there's more to it, right? The, the internet of things. And so we're all wireless connected together, really. And so it really opened my eyes and things that I just didn't really think about in general, like how do we really use technology and how does an individual with ID 
and development disability use that technology piece. And so I went from just some simple research pieces of really kind of thinking about doing focus groups, right? And then bringing in um, multiple stakeholders as in vocational job specialists, folk rehab folks, um, transition coordinators, parents, uh, guardians, caregivers, and actually the individuals themselves. And so I got some really great information. And right now this year, we're kind of pumping off some good research um, manuscripts that we're submitting this this year and last year for the broad mass to read, of course. And uh, so hopefully you'll see those in a year or so um, out in some journals to kind of look at what's being used. Because a lot of the pieces, there's that big disconnect between research and actually practice. And so kind of opened my eyes there too. And, and since I've been here as well too, I, I'm a board member, wonderful 55-acre community for individuals with intellectual disabilities and traumatic brain injury. The unique part of this is that this organization, this company, it goes from full independence. Actually, you live off campus in your own apartment all the way to nursing homes and everywhere in between. So when you think about it, the back of parents' minds as in, where is my child going to go when they graduate high school? The easiest answer is, oh, they'll stay with me forever. But typically that that son or daughter outlives the parents and then kind of looking at the independence piece. And so I love this place. Um, It's called Annandale. It's in Sewanee, Georgia, which is the northeast suburbs of Atlanta. And um, so I've been a board member there, too, as well. And then I was kind of uh, taking a few IT courses on the side to kind of look at IT as a whole. So when things break down, I can fix them now. So I've been doing a lot of, a lot of different things. But again, it's really been all about transition, really been a lot about the infuse, infusion of technology as well, too. And just kind of the goal is to increase the quality of life. For individuals with ID. And what'd you say? And I had a kid. <laughs> and I had a kid too. So yeah, that that's really the biggest pieces. So yeah, since I moved on here, Georgia State got married, had a kid, you know, and just living the life. Awesome. Yeah, I'm taking so many notes because I gravitate toward elementary age kids and most of my career has been with elementary age kids. And you mentioned when we were talking before we started recording that Everybody needs to be aware of transition, even from an early age. So it's not just 14 years old and older. It's not just high school. So can you speak to that a little bit? Yeah. And so that kind of really put that thought into the forefront for me when at Ohio State, actually, we actually, I went through a transition course while as a student in the program, but after we switched from quarters to semesters, the program was dropped. Since coming to Georgia, really looking at uh, teacher preparation and looking at those endorsements that states uh, utilize, looking at the research, what do we need to do to really prepare teachers to assist in transition? One of the things I've always been running into at Ohio State and Georgia State is that students who are in the early childhood arena actually say out loud, like, well, this doesn't really involve me and concern me, really. And I was like, well, it actually does. Because it's it's the students, it's the interactions the students receive when they're young in, in elementary school, I kind of put them on the path, right? And so just because they're in first, second grade, we're preparing them for independence, for adulthood, really. Um, and so if we kind of, I would say, skirt some, some corners a little bit and do things for them, we're not really building their independence. And so... Some states, you know, by law at 16 years of age, you have to, by law, introduce and, and uh, transition IEP. Um, some states are 14, but they always say the earlier the better, right? But I think that we kind of really need to get back into focusing on transition as a class so we can really hone in on those skills. Because when you think about it, one of the things I always tell my students when, when we look at inclusion, right? And so we, we, I always give the example of uh, a cooking skill, right? Everybody in the classroom needs to have a job. So instead of focusing on weaknesses, we always focus on those strengths. But what about one of our students here who may be in a wheelchair, for example? And we're talking about maybe elementary school, late elementary, early middle school. And I always tell students proximity does not equal inclusion or engagement, really. And so just because a student is there near the students doesn't mean they're actually engaged in it. And so the teacher has to think outside the box of how do I get this student included in this activity to make it meaningful for that student. And I think too, that the students 
typical developing students actually benefit as well too because they're they're seeing that everybody has a part. Everybody has unique skill sets they can bring together and accomplish a goal. So, um, so yeah, that's kind of what I'm, you know, the, the biggest pieces of that transition. It concerns everybody. I had talked to my wife about transition. She is a teacher in a preschool right now. And so she works with three-year-olds, but transition still should be in her mind too, because once, if you start thinking about transition too late, say 14, you're already behind the curve. And we, we know that because the waiting list, like waivers, for example, for help from city um, organizations, counties, um, state organizations as well too. So the earlier, the better. I'm learning so much because I, besides the one year I taught in high school, my first year teaching, haven't, you know, it's like, well, you don't have to worry about transition when we go over the IEP stuff. So, you know, I'm thinking too, on the other side of it, a lot, it seems like you kind of mentioned there are people who work with high schoolers who are interested in transition, but actually, which is a great start, but interest really isn't enough. And so I'm thinking even... So talking about professional development opportunities for middle school and high school teachers, but also for elementary teachers, what should we be seeking out and how, what resources do we look for? So one of the pieces, and and that's an interesting part too, when we joked earlier about Googling, I mean, you can Google one thing and transition and a thousand different things pop up. And the hard part is everyone can have a website these days. It's the, it's the researchers, uh, academics out there who are actually really doing the the good stuff when it comes to what do we really need? And when we pull the nation, when we pull the teachers and, and individuals with ID and, and the parents and guardians, like what are we, what are we missing? And cause we can always do better. And so Mary Morningstar, um, Michael Wehmeyer, those are the kind of the two in my mind that always pop out as, as a big players in transition. There are many, many, many more. So I'm hopefully don't offend anybody, but those are the two folks I always start with because I know Mary Morningstar has some great research out there of what's going on when it comes to what, how do we prepare students or teachers, sorry, for transition? What do we really need? What, what experiences they need? What do they need to be reading, um, et cetera. And also to is life after high school. So one of the focuses we've been doing for quite a while now, for the last 15 years is getting students now into college settings. Uh, thinkcollege.net is a great resource for teachers to go to to kind of look at what is what's out there, right? How should I how am I going to prepare students for a college setting if I've have been in college for 10, 15, 20 years now, right? So I remember when I was working in an autism clinic, a lot of our clients were getting older and so, so what are we going to do? Where do they live? What's some employment opportunities for them? We didn't know. So we actually went out into the community and looked around and we toured different facilities um, that had some good, a good reputation when, when it comes to the uh, employment of individuals with ID. And so that actually firsthand gave us a better idea of what to expect. And so I think that thinkcollege.net as well, too, is a great resource um, to go on and look at within each state, how many universities and colleges actually have a program like this. And then also, are, are the students going to, what is the expectation when it comes to independent living? Are they going to live on campus or are they expected to get their own apartment or live at home and, and, and um, commute? Are they commute driving? Are they going to commute with their family members taking to and from school or take public transportation? What's the commitment when it comes to expectation to be in the classroom? And so I, I like the, the piece where Ohio State, when I was there, and I know it's come a long way since I've been there and previously, so it's always going in the right direction, which is great, is every year there's something enhanced about that program. And we've, when I was there, we had the first student who actually drove to campus. He commuted himself, so it was fantastic. Uh, we put students in independent apartments and had an independent living coordinator go out there and kind of teach them like life skills, which is great as well too. And so looking at that and the, also the expectation of the cost, right? And so how much does it cost and what's the uh, outcome? for being a program, not just like, yes, I went to Ohio State, but what do I get when I'm done with the program? If I'm there for two years, or one year, or four year. Um, so I think just kind of looking and see what the program is, what it provides, and what what are the gaps that I need to teach as a, as a teacher to get him or her prepared for 
a program like that. What's do you know the name of the program at Ohio State? It's TOPS, T-O-P-S. And it's transition options for I think it's post-secondary or post-secondary students, I believe. My old boss, Margo, she'll kill me now now that I can't remember the name of it, but it's always tops. But yeah. Okay. Yeah, and it's located in the uh, Nyasanger Center, which is within the Wexner Medical grounds, I guess. And then, okay, so you have Mary Morningstar and Michael, what's the last name? Waymeyer. Waymeyer, okay. This episode is brought to you by Mindful Literacy Practice. Mindful Literacy Practice is the sister company to Mindful Literacy Columbus. We are a private tutoring and professional development company whose mission is to build a strong learning community that cultivates literacy and mindfulness practices with children, their families, and their teachers. Frequent and consistent tutoring is the key to fluency growth, no matter where your child is on the learning continuum, from special education to gifted education and everywhere in between. All elementary kids need to practice oral reading fluency and math facts. Mindful Literacy Practice offers affordable, high-quality, evidence-based methodology combined with precision teaching data tracking in both reading and math. For just 10 minutes a session, three to five days a week, it is not uncommon for us to see fluency rates double in the course of 10 to 12 weeks. Want to improve the speed in which your child can read and or do math facts? Mindful Literacy Fluency Programs. Improve what you measure. Practice, measure, improve, repeat. Listeners of this podcast can use code FLUENCY50 for their first registration. MindfulLiteracyPractice.org forward slash fluency forward. So one of the other things I'm wondering about, you mentioned tapping into universal design learning, and then you dropped an acronym I had never heard of. You said UDL, and then you said UDT, Universal Design Transition. Yeah, Universal Design Force Transition, yes. For my uh, doc student, she just wrote a paper, and it's in their revision process right now. We're about to submit it for publication, and so she's really transition-focused. And one of the nice things about having doc students is that you get to kind of pick and choose who you want, right? Who best fit your interest. And so she taught in schools for a little over 12 years, I believe. And the issue she saw every year is this transition piece that we're not preparing kids properly, students properly for that transition. And so what can, how can we do things better? And so she's looking at the UDT process of using those four principles of UDL, um, to enhance transition and so it's why recreate the wheel if there's a wheel already created just enhance a little bit and incorporate it into the transition process so i think those folks who are familiar with udl when they read over the udt process they can say oh this is very familiar i can i can do this if i just make this week here i can really incorporate it in my transition programming Great. Well, you know, I love systems thinking. So, (laughs) okay. So one of the things that I find to be really frustrating as a teacher who is also a scholar is that the amount of time that it takes by the time hot off the press research gets in my hot little hands, it, your experiment has happened like two years prior, right? So you just said, you did all of this work, you did all of this research. And then I know personally that if you could take that research and turn it around in a year, that is a fast pace. Mm-hmm. Then we have to wait a bit for it to come out again. So could you please give me a sneak peek on some of these manuscripts that you have in the works and kind of give us like a hint of direction of different areas that we could be thinking about? So one of the things is, which is unfortunate is that when it comes to technology, and like you said, by the time that the article is out there for publication to read, it's already two, two and a half years old. Now, the even more difficult part there when it involves technology, if it's already six months down the road, it's already outdated. But one of the pieces when it comes to general ideas for transition and, and also to increase quality of life when it comes to vocational and social connectedness is a use of things, tools we already have now. 
And so think about all the tools that we used to use as teachers back in the day for communication devices, et cetera. The Big Macs, for example, those are, I would say, outdated. But unfortunately, a lot of the schools still use those today because that's all they have due to funding cuts and budget restrictions. But a lot of the our, uh, individuals we interviewed all have smartphones. They A lot of them already play um, games either on Nintendo Switch or another platform like Xbox and PlayStation. And there's a lot of components in there when it comes to connecting with outside individuals uh, through their microphones, which is you know wireless connection usually, typically. Um, but also on the on the smartphone, there's so many devices now or, or, or applications you can just download for free or a low cost. That never was an option 10 years ago, 15 years ago. And so when it comes to portability as well, too, we're looking at the portability of these, these options here. And now I can take my phone with me everywhere I go. I mean, think about when I interviewed um, focus groups, I kind of asked questions of, hey, by the way, what do you use on a daily basis? How do you keep track of your life? You know, <laughs> It's how do you keep your life together? And so when they started thinking about their own use of technology, then you could, okay, now let's think about this one individual, for example, what do they use? And, and so when it comes to time management, when it comes to videos, for example, YouTube, you can Google everything, but now you can YouTube everything. And I did it back in the day. I still do now for cooking, for example, using videos or online reading step-by-step instructions to bake things or cook things. We, we use it in, in the, the right there with Bluetooth headphones now. You can pop them in and you can be a fantastic employee by doing step-by-step instructions. You know, you walk down the street these days and how many people are on their phones or have earbuds in their ears? It could be music. It could be a conversation. It could be a podcast. It could be instructions, walking to your next place, navigation. Just remember when my first time or your first time at Ohio State's campus, lost on the sauce, right? Didn't know where to go. And so I didn't want to be that nerd really kind of with a map or something looking around. So I tried to memorize my route before I left my, uh, my house. When I got to campus here, I park here, I walked down this way. I walked, you know, take a left there and try to find it. But then when you get to the building, you're still kind of lost. And so Google um, has done a great job of incorporating like turn by turn instructions for pedestrian walking. It used to be just driving. But now I was walking as well, too. And so I so said that's some of the things kind of think about that we just we take for granted. One thing also, and I'm not sure I know this because Georgia, but a Georgia state has a program called Tools for Life. And their main purpose is just getting all the tools out there. For individuals with disabilities to help them increase their independence and quality of life. If you live in Georgia or visit. You can make an appointment actually and go down to their um, office and you can try out things. And so if you have uh, issues, maybe eating, for example, there you can you can basically go in. It's like almost going to a shoe store, trying all the shoes you want and kind of figure it out and see also, which is I think is really nice there is they also allow you to take things home and try them out at home. And this is like reading, it, it's access, it's teaching you, for example. My house is pretty automated now when it comes to door locks and lights and cameras and everything like that. But we have now the utilization of Google Home, Apple Home. We have Alexa and the automation piece. And, and one of the folks was telling me that they use their Xbox, not just to play games, though, but it's for their whole entire house automation when it comes to um, their temperature, when it comes to time lights and, and just turning lights and off in general. So. Um, there's a lot of cool things that we're using that you may think, like, for example, the Xbox, you just play games on it. No, there's so many other components that you can really use. As long as you do it right, know how to do it, you can set up your whole entire house. You can be super independent that without that one machine, then it's night and day from where we were, like I said, 10, 15 years ago. So. Wow. I'm thinking how exciting this must be for parents, you know, mm-hmm. to think about use of these tools and you know what may have been impossible 20 years ago with somebody with a similar profile is now very possible mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and then i think and one of the pieces to where one of my colleagues and i were talking about more 
proactive than reactive when it comes to you know, kids, individuals who gain to challenge behavior. I'm looking at the heart rate monitor on like an Apple Watch. And so before you look at those physical characteristics and behaviors they engage in, you can look at their now heart rate. And once it starts being elevated, they can look as cool as a cucumber, but they have a, their heart rate is skyrocketing. So you can kind of kind of nip it in the bud and, and, and um, engage them in something else before they engage in challenging behavior. But one of the things when we're talking about that is cost. That's one of the things also too, kind of what, who's going to pay for what and, and how is that going to be training? Uh, something breaks, who's going to pay for that cost too? And so a lot of the pieces of voc rehab, for example, looking at other organizations, but really kind of the pieces to where if you buy a phone these days, you know, you can go high end, you know, $1,200 for an Apple phone. You can go $600, $700 for a, a, a Google phone, for example. And then, but once you have those pieces, I, I mean, they last quite a while, but it, again, it's, it's the cost. And that's one of the biggest barriers that I've seen that parents and guardians and individuals have, have stated out loud is that the cost and the upkeep. And I do like these, the, the one thing that, um, Amazon is doing these days is that if you buy like a first or second generation Alexa, you can turn it in in a couple of years and actually get money back for it versus just like throwing it away or, or putting it in the back of the shelf or something to get an upgrade to it. So previously you used to be able to need to buy the Alexa and then buy a hub to control your automation around the house, your lights, your thermostat, et cetera. Now it's all built in now. And so like one of my Alexa hubs that I have it's kind of outdated. It still works, but at some point I'm going to try to get a new one. And so I like how they're kind of keeping costs lower and giving opportunities to trade in the old ones for the new ones. And also that's a great green initiative as well too, which I love to kind of think about how we can enhance the house, enhance their life that much more just by adding an automated switch, light switch or a plug, for example. So, but yeah, that, but the cost is really, I think it's the education piece, but also the cost is important because a lot of the schooling, a lot of the college programs, they do cost a lot of money. And um, that's why I was kind of looking at, okay, we got this piece and we got these connections. We have all these tools, but if we still have these barriers in place, what does it really mean then? We can create the best tools ever, but if they're out of reach for 90% of our, our base, then what's the point, right? And so how can we decrease that cost? So universities and colleges, they've gone pretty far down the, the good path when it comes to letting students access um, college savings plans, the 529 college savings plans. They have, and I can't remember the acronym for it, but the status that they can access and fill out financial aid now and stuff. When I was at Ohio State, that wasn't a possibility. And I think CPT status definitely kind of removing those barriers. And like I said, the big one is the financial piece. Yeah, coming, it comes down to accessibility every time, it feels like. It does. Mm -hmm. What your child does after high school is one of the most exciting and most important decisions they will make. But it's also one of the most stressful. This decision not only impacts their future, but a college education costs about the equivalent of a house these days. Student loan debt is a trillion dollar problem. And to make things even more confusing, there are thousands of schools out there and hundreds of things to study. How is your child supposed to know what's right for them? We're here to help. We are in the college planning experts. Our college planning advisors work one-on-one -on -one with your team to help them discover their very best path, taking all their special circumstances, wants, and needs into account. Whether your child is an athlete or has learning differences, our advisors are trained to help your child chart their very best educational path towards their brightest future. We've helped more than a thousand students find their very best path and have saved their families more than $60 million in higher education costs. Let us do the same for your family. Visit incollegeplanning.com to learn more. So I'm thinking these using technology to increase independence, does it create a dependence on the technology? Mm -hmm. For example, a person could get from point A to point B with a Google map, but then let's say their phone dies and they're mid-route and now they're like, oh, now what do I do? Mm -hmm. Yep. When you have the researchers or the trainers knowing what's, what's next, 
because there's never the end, right? No, nobody ever reaches the end of the race. There's always something that's next. And so, for example, when we did the, the purpose of the research I did at Ohio State was that you had to kind of withdraw a little bit from the technology. And so you use the technology 100% of the time to, at the beginning for skill acquisition, but then when you start to master that skill, what we wanted to see, what we did see is those individuals, in this case, it was a, an iPod, you know, what are those these days, right? But iPods, right? So they actually put them in their pockets and they did the task independently. But then when they came to like a hurdle, they pulled it out, kind of figured out where they were in the video prompting process. They watched that video, just that segment, did that step, put the put the pod, iPad back in, back in their pocket, and they continued with the task. And so when it comes to navigation, it comes to other tasks that we just don't want to, them to be dependent on these machines because, again, when the technology fails, we don't want them staying there lost. We want to teach them that here's what you do, and unfortunately, when you're looking at your phone, you need to start looking up a little bit and kind of figure out your way. I'm really bad at street names, but I'm really great with landmarks. And so I know that if I'm walking over here, I know this this building here, I need to take a left there and stuff. And so, and again, when it comes to transition, we got to think about the next step, next step, next step. And we don't want them to be dependent on that. For example, you know, navigation, but we want that to be the first step to be independent and then only pulling it out when they really need it. Yeah, I hear you're saying we have to program for generalization. We do. That's my favorite word. Generalization and maintenance. Yes. I know. So, so I think that's actually a good point for any intervention, whether it's technology based or not. It's okay. Get the intervention going. Get the skill to where we need it to be, and then how do we back off the support so that it's independent? So, perhaps when you're talking about thinking about transition, even with preschool thinking about how quickly can you remove those supports and still see the level of success. And looking at what's out there in the literature when it comes to the use of technology in skill acquisition. And unfortunately, I, I knew the answer to my question, but there was a low percentage, a super low percentage of articles actually did include generalization and maintenance. I have a phrase that my old advisor told me never to use. But since I'm in a safe zone right now, I'll say it's true maintenance and true generalization. What I mean by that is when you remove that intervention, right? When do you actually probe for maintenance and generalization? And right now, we're talking about maintenance for a minute, is that researchers out there, they get, they get some great data. The, the data set is fantastic. The, they show that the technology you know, usage did increase skill acquisition. But then once they reach their mastery criteria, when does maintenance occur? And unfortunately, a lot of the articles that I've read, nobody really, a lot of people weren't specific on when they included those maintenance probes or maintenance data points. And so that could be the next day. It could be the session, the last intervention session was in the morning and the mastery or the maintenance session was in the afternoon after lunch. Is that really enough time to really show maintenance? I, I would say no. So what my advisor, Dr. Malone, we discussed a lot when I was a student is uh, maintenance really needs to go into, you got to be systematic in your maintenance probes, two weeks, four weeks, six weeks out to really show whether or not it's true maintenance. Um, and that was my biggest argument when I was a student, but she just said that's another fight down the road, but right now just go from there. And so, but what does that really mean? I mean, we have researchers who don't have time when we work on schools, when schools are over, then we don't have access to those students. And so we can show baseline intervention and maybe a, a data point or two in maintenance. Then in DB systematic, when do we do generalization? A lot of the a lot of the folks say we just do generalization at the end of intervention, but we should be probing for generalization throughout the study to show that those two things are independent going forward from there. So um, just different pieces. And so that's kind of what I would like to touch on down the road as a researcher is how do we truly implement maintenance and generalization and what are some measures we can use to really show whether or not a skill actually maintained over time? Yeah. And, and across settings and across providers too, I thinking about how relevant this is for intervention specialists in their IEP writing and then progress reporting. 
a lot of times we can show that a student mastered a skill. You know, when we talk about this all the time, extended school year services are coming back from a big break and a student regresses or loses a skill. You know, I think about that, that systematic in your maintenance probes, two weeks, four weeks, six weeks, and even on and on, like, especially if a student masters a goal within the first quarter of their IEP, how often are we going back to measure that again? I think that's really important to think about when you when you're writing IEP goals and objectives. Exactly. And then when you think about if those skills are foundational skills, if we're just bulldozing down the road just to show that we are showing progress, are we truly showing mastery or not? And so if we just do the generic three data points, 80% or higher, or three 100% or higher, if we do that, have they truly mastered it? And we see that a lot of times where the unfortunate part about generalization is that the go-to is, is uh, train and hope. And that's what I train you and I hope that it works somewhere else and good luck. Fortunately, that's always that's the go-to for a lot of researchers and teachers. But when teachers, we have the time to really implement generalization throughout your training. So that way it is multiple teachers, right? Multiple um, novel individuals, novel tools and instruments, novel settings. And once you're done, if you have generalization included in the intervention already, so when they master it, they truly master that skill. And I tell students a lot when we use uh, picture exchange programs or just picture picture icons, for example, that if they're looking for people identification, right? We, a lot of times we take pictures of family members. Who's that? Your mom. Who's that? Your dad. Who's that? Oh, that's Miss So-and-so, my teacher. But we use the same picture over and over and over again. The hard part is, is that if someone puts a hat on, if someone puts a pair of sunglasses on, they have no idea who it is. Or if Dr. Ben is your teacher, she changes her hair every six months. So goodness. <laughs> <laughs> Platinum, purple, brown. <laughs> exactly. But then think about though, like there's applications now. There's a lot of work to where you can take a picture now. And I don't know these applications really well because I don't do that photo stuff. But I mean, you can put a hat on somebody or sunglasses or change their hairstyle just like that these days. And then you can print them off. Boom. So you can never have the, high, the, the hairstyle. but just in case you're looking at the, the focus, the features, what are the main features of your face that I'm looking for to know whether or not that's Dr. Bennett, right? Not the hair, not the whatever, but what am I looking at to make sure that that person is you versus me, right? So it's time. It's thoughtful planning, right? And purposeful intervention that really gets all that together when it comes to truly mastering a skill, um, which is important. And, and when it comes to generalization maintenance. Thoughtful planning and time. Yes, <laughs> please. Make sure to save the day for two fun events in 2021 in partnership with the Final Third Foundation Mindful Literacy Columbus presents 2021 Summer Writing Camp. Kids entering third to seventh grade will have the opportunity to be a part of this investive writing camp. Save the date for this week of August 8th. Email Megan at mindfulliteracypractice.org for more information. Make sure to mention that you heard about this camp from the podcast and enter a drawing to win 50% of the camp tuition. First Annual Mindful Literacy Columbus Conference for Kids and Their Grown-Ups. After this conclusion of the writing camp, we will hold a community celebration. This will include kids showcasing their work, art, music, yoga, food, and high-quality professional presentations for both teachers and parents. Teachers will have the opportunity to learn CEUs. The conference, which will be held on Saturday, August 15, 2021, will serve as a fundraiser for a non-profit organization. We will also currently accepting presentation proposals from teachers and professionals in the community. Please email Stacy S T A C E Y at Stacy at mindfulliteracypractice.org to receive more information about the conference and or the submit of a presentation proposal. I really appreciate your time talking with us today. 
But I do, I have one more question related to thinking about people's just various brain functions and just the hold sometimes technology can have on the brain because it gives it gives people such big hits of dopamine. Do you ever find that students or people in, who are in post-secondary using the technology get sidetracked with their executive functioning skills and the technology? I mean, if you're using Xbox for daily living skills, is how easy is it just to be like, yeah, well, I'm just going to play a quick game here. <laughs> yeah, and that's one of the pieces. And I think that when I worked at the TOPS program at Ohio State, it really opened my eyes to where uh, we have different pillars in the program when it comes to the academic piece, right? The independent living and the socialization piece, right? And so that's one of the pieces where you have all this technology, but you have to be thoughtful in your planning when it comes to well, what does a social outing look like? And the great thing pre-COVID is that there are thousands of students all over campus every single second of the day um, going to the gym, the RPAC. Um, at Ohio State, going to classes, and it could be a, a Zuma class or a yoga class, or we're just working out. There, there are a lot of opportunities to build some social connections with people. And so, I being there, I know that it's not a detriment yet because that those students that I worked with there, they were super willing to get out and go and meet people and go to the movies and go shopping together. That was one of the biggest focus for us. And the, the students there loved it. Some of the students I see as uh, there is that pitfall of being dependent on it. And what's the point of going out to the local library or community center to hang out with people or just interact when you can just stay at home and have thousands of people at the touch of a button? So it's, it's that piece to where for us as teachers, researchers, parents, guardians, caregivers, is that it's a healthy balance between technology and no technology. And so we don't want to, we got that fine line, we don't want to cross into learn helplessness. But I think that right now, I, I feel comfortable that a lot of the students, and a lot of the students actually do individually feel comfortable interacting online. But when you put them in a face-to-face interaction, they kind of break down. We, I didn't have a student. There's a student uh, um, that my colleague worked with where he has autism and his face-to-face communication skills weren't that great. But he actually got into front. Of, he got in front of an avatar on the screen. It was a live avatar. And it was a, like a cartoon character kind of thing. And he was just chit-chat with it. And his parents were like, wow, we've never seen him this interactive before with somebody. When we worked with students preparing for job interviews, the comfortability piece about working with us because they know us, but going out and talking with somebody, I mean, you get nervous. I get nervous talking to new people or especially when it's your job, your future jobs on the line, right? And so there's a lot of pieces to where the benefits of interviewing on Zoom now, you know, people feel way more comfortable doing that because it's more of a digital piece versus a face-to-face. They're still working on those social skills, but they're more outgoing and more talkative when they're on that format. And so um, we, I'm not sure we're 10 years from now where we'll be when it comes to technology. I hope that we still have that good, healthy balance between out there enjoying life, seeing the world, and then being on the technology front. Yes, healthy balance. Good for all of us to keep in mind. Yes. Eli, thank you so much for your time and your expertise in sharing with us the importance of thinking about transitioning to life after high school. So much for having me. It's been a pleasure. <laughs> Thank you for listening to Mindful Literacy Podcast. May you be inspired, energized, and share this love with those in your care. We are also grateful to have you as a part of our community. If you are enjoying the content in this podcast, please share this with your friends and colleagues. Subscribe, rate, and leave a review. Please also take a moment to connect with us on Facebook, mindful.literacy.columbus and on Instagram, mindful.literacy.cbus. We want to hear from you. What topics do you want to uncover next? Who is doing these amazing things on the field of education that we should be talking about in season three? Until next time, may you be happy, healthy, and at peace.
before we wrap things up, we want to mention one more way from anywhere in the world that you and your students can get involved with Mindful Literacy Columbus. For just $25 a month, you can become a patron member of Mindful Literacy Columbus. Yes, that's right. For less than the cost of a latte a week, you will become a champion for child literacy. And you have the opportunity to give directly back to kids in two ways. First, dues enable staff to grant right, fundraise, and build organizational awareness. Second, patron members are invited to contribute monthly to our publishing house, Beehive Press. The books that your students will curate will then be sold to generate even more scholarship money for your students. Beehive Press is an imprint of Mindful Literacy Columbus. Here is what patron members will get for their $25 per month. Submit one book by Kids for Kids for Beehive Press per month. Receive video lesson plans on how to engage kids in the writing process and PDF graphic organizers to help with the pre-writing process. It includes help with book layout, one-to-one final editing session, marketing, sales, and logistics of the book. Receive the proof of the book for free. It includes copyright and ISBN number. Each published book that is sold gives back to MLC. 50% goes to scholarships, 50% goes to the authors. To become a patron member, go to mindfulliteracypractice.org slash donate.